Hi there. You're listening to One of Eight Billion, a podcast about all of us. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. This podcast is supported by 107, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Online at 107.com. We all have a story, don't we? We've all had successes and failures, joy and disappointment, love and sadness. And yet, we've all made it to here, to right now. Our stories are one amongst eight billion others. Eight billion other stories, each of them unique, each of them grand in their own way, and each of them a window into the humanity that connects us all. One of Eight Billion tells life stories from around the world. Let's listen. Our story today is about Jeff Eaton, a partner at Autogram, where he helps large companies understand and manage their digital content. Jeff has always been driven to find order in the complex, whether it was teaching himself programming skills as a child or reevaluating his relationship with faith and religion as he got older. He has a passion for trying to get things to make sense, which makes him a great guest to help us understand more about the world on one of eight billion. Welcome to One of Eight Billion. Would you please introduce yourself? So I'm Jeff Eaton. What's my now? Who am I? I would say probably the easiest way to sum it up is middle-aged, kind of nerdy tech guy in the Midwest of America, which is a very narrow slice of the population. You don't run into those a lot, but I'm one of the partners of a small consulting agency that I founded with Karen McGrain and Ethan Marcotte about a year and a half ago. And we do a lot of work in information architecture and large-scale content planning for organizations that have big digital publishing efforts. A long time before that, I worked in open source software development, CMS stuff. That's how I know a lot of people that I keep in touch with online. But beyond my professional work, I'd say all of the stuff that I'm interested in from podcasting about religious extremism in American politics or organizing electronic supplies for my workshop. I think one of the consistent themes that is there in my work and my study and my recreational stuff is making sense of things and understanding systems and how they work and how they interact with us and the world around us. That's something that keeps me waking up every morning. I'm fascinated by your tweets and your work on religious extremism in America. And I think we've had a couple of backwards and forwards on the Twitters. So let's get to that a little later on. But I want to put a pin in it because it's definitely something I want to talk about. I love how you talked about making sense of things, because that's definitely something that you do in your work with Autogram. Ethan was on the show and I asked him about the name and the origin of the name. And he said that I needed to talk to you about the name because <laughs> you're the one that actually, I think, came up with the name. So could you tell us about Autogram? Why did yeah. you choose .is for the domain name? And tell us a little bit about the word and like how that came up. Just to step back a bit, probably about two years ago or so, Karen McGrain and Ethan Marcotte and I started talking about some of the shared challenges that we'd been seeing with clients that we worked with. Because we'd all worked in different parts of this general digital stuff on the web industry. And we kept finding certain kinds of problems that each of us was seeing from different angles with different clients. And it was this like emerging, fuzzy, frustrating model that a lot of large clients that were really trying to do the right thing and push forward and build good systems were still running into. A lot of what we wanted to work on with Autogram was helping them solve some of those specific problems that we were seeing in like the intersection of, you know, design and organizational process and workflow and content architecture and IA and stuff like that. It's the, the kind of nerdy stuff that we rant about on Twitter all the time. But 
we started talking about names for, okay, if we were to put our shingle up and, you know, and do this, what do we want to call ourselves? And Autogram was one of the names that we came up with just thinking about different kinds of interesting linguistic, I guess, novelties. An Autogram it was a term coined in, I think, the 1980s by a mathematician. It's basically a sentence that describes its own contents alphabetically. Like this sentence contains five A's, two C's, 10 M's, and so on and so forth. And it's tricky. It's almost creating a complicated palindrome, but squared, because as you change the sentence to describe the sentence, it loops back on itself. And it's very difficult to create one without many iterations through of tweaking it and refining it and trying to arrange things so that correctly enumerating all of the letter cues doesn't in fact ripple off and change something else. And that challenge of describing the thing that's changing as you describe it just felt very familiar to us as, as we talked about the kinds of problems we were seeing with our clients. Because with the kinds of things that we tackle at Autogram and with large digital publishing and digital communications teams, it's rarely a technology problem in and of itself. Ah, oh, there's the switch you need to flip, or ah, oh, you just need program X or service Y. It's complicated issues with like how different parts of an organization work together and understand each other and communicate both with themselves and the outside world. And as you learn about that and describe it and investigate it, you're changing it too. It's catchy. It wasn't offensive in any language. And that's all you can really hope for in a domain name these days. It's catchy and not some sort of horrifying profanity in another language. And .is, the domain, was what we went for just on a whim, in part because, well, obviously, it's available. There didn't seem to be any profound ethical conundrums with Iceland's government at the moment. <laughs> Just a quick due diligence. But it also allowed us to do some fun tricks when building out the URLs for our website, because our bio pages are URLs like Autogram is Jeff, Autogram is Ethan, Autogram is Karen. And we've got a new posts under a URL like Autogram is reading and stuff like that language of speakable URLs, which is pretty down, pretty far down the nerdy rabbit trail. But that's, I think we follow each other on Twitter. That's, that is nothing new. It's <laughs> <laughs> nothing new. No, I love the complexity and the self-referential idea behind the name. And I know how hard it is to run a company and how complex client problems can be. And we work so hard to solve them. I want to try to take an even bigger picture of just our own little industry and our microcosm of people and clients and take a step back and think about the whole planet, all 8 billion mm -hmm. of us. We are each one of those 8 billion. And to me, that's both amazing and scary <laughs> and allows me to feel both connected and disconnected from people around me and from the people I work with. How does being one of 8 billion make you feel? What thoughts come to mind when you think about that? Boy, you know, one of 8 billion. I mean, it, I, I will say like when we first started chatting, that was one of the things that really struck me. I, I love the concept of the podcast and just that frame is one that it's valuable and it it's both instructive and encouraging. It, mm. it nudges us towards a kind of introspection that I think is really important and easy to lose in like the, mm -hmm. the scramble of just work and day-to-day -day humaning. <laughs> but I, I think, how do I see or understand myself in that 8 billion? Today, I would say it's comforting and reassuring in that burden of achieving significance or something like that, that I think can really, it can really drive us or gnaw at us, depending on how you experience it. That's always going to be fairly relative. It's in, in, in a world of 8 billion people, the odds that I'm going to be the one who shifts things or I'm going to be the one who changes humanity is fairly slim. 
And there's a comfort in that, that I'm not screwing up if I haven't altered life for 4 billion of those people or something like that. But at the same time, thinking about it as 8 billion individual lone folks just interacting with each other and living life, I think there's a responsibility that goes along with that because at least now, like where I'm at today, it helps me to remember that the place and the meaning in that big giant pile of humanity is really about the tiny pool of people that I actually touch and connect with and interact with in my actual life. It's not about changing the world or leaving a giant footprint on history or something like that. It's Mm -hmm. about making sure that those interactions with that tiny sliver of that 8 billion people that I know and I come in contact with, that those individual interactions are ones that make their little slice of human experience better. Does that make sense? I think so. And while you were talking and while I was listening, I realized that there's actually more than 8 billion because there are all those people that came before us and that will come after us. And we are a slice, as you said, not just of 8 billion, but a slice in time of those 8 billion. Yeah. And and I realized too that take on it, the the sort of tension between significance and scale and personal connection. I don't necessarily think that's a universal drive, and that's what everybody takes from it. You've mentioned that you've listened to some of my writing and ranting on, let's say, more philosophical and spiritual topics. And I think for me, at least, the shift away from feeling that it's my job to change the world has been a process. It's been a slow process of accepting that and coming to believe that it's not giving up, it's not failing to not constantly strive to alter the world. It doesn't mean giving up. It doesn't mean just accepting things that you don't think are okay. It's Maybe we'll dig into it a little bit more later, but that concept of a quest for like grand significance, it, it's really easy for that to, to eat you alive. <laughs> I'm going to try not to let it eat me alive because I, I think I can identify <laughs> with, what you're, with what you're saying. Let's go back a little bit in time, Jeff. I would love to find out where life started for you. Where were you born? Who was around at the time? When did that happen? What did the early little baby Jeff look like? So the fun bit of trivia was born on August 16th, 1977, which coincidentally is the day Elvis died. Supposedly. Yeah, so they say. <laughs> um, but one of the funny anecdotes is that my father and my mother had gone to the hospital and they'd gone through the whole complicated labor and birth process. And my mother woke up the next morning to the sounds of just nurses sobbing. And uh, it was that they had just gotten news that Elvis had passed away and it was all of the nurses were just shaken by it. And so that would, that was definitely what heralded my birth, sobbing nurses. But yeah, I'm a solidly Midwestern guy. I grew up in the Chicago area, the Chicago suburbs, bounced around in that general area for a number of years. And my family comes from Indiana, which is not too far away, but for a five, six-year-old kid, the long trek from the Chicago suburbs to visit relatives in Indiana feels like you're traveling across the world, getting in the back of the car and killing time and wondering, oh, when are we going to get there? That was an iconic experience around holidays or vacations for me. And I look back on that and it sounds like maybe a two hour and 45 minute, maybe three and a half hour drive, depending on traffic. I've waited for flights longer than that as an adult. (laughs) Uh, So it's, it's funny to look back and think about that as remembering the sensation of it being such a, you know, sense of such an epic journey, but it's about that scale thing. Again, it's about perspective some of my earliest experiences. Yeah, I think early on, I was very fortunate and my parents definitely encouraged me to pursue various creative endeavors and stuff like that. So I I wanted to get a dog when I was a kid. So I went door to door and collected aluminum cans in a little red wagon and collected newspapers and took them to the recycling center over two summers, saved up enough money. 
I look back and it's like some deeply iconic, idyllic American suburban life kinds of experiences. And I, I feel tremendously fortunate to have had that kind of stability and support. My parents were rich by any means. It was like solidly middle class in the Midwest. My dad was an electrical engineer and had an opportunity to get an old TRS-80 computer back in the very early 80s. So like I grew up not necessarily being neck deep in technology, but with easy, ready access to a lot of those things that I think helped me make a transition into a career that relied on a lot of technology very early. TRS-80, that was a Tandy product, I think. Yeah, the Radio Shack Trash 80. (laughs) Yes. He was very happy because he'd gotten the 4K memory upgrade. Oh my gosh, yeah, that made a big deal, didn't it? (laughs) If you're counting the number of kilobytes you have total to run software, that makes a big difference. My earliest technology memories are like finding, I was probably about six which I was a nerd early, but uh, there was a magazine that he had that had a game, something like later, like Excite Bike on the Nintendo would probably be the closest version of it. You get a little mm-hmm. motorcycle and you're jumping on hills and over barrels. But there was source code for a game like that in a magazine. And these were the days of Byte magazine where you would get a magazine and you could type all of the source code in from like 16 pages of printed code and execute it and hope that you had not made typos or that there wasn't a problem (laughs) in what they had published. And then I learned to save things to and load things off of a cassette player to to load software. And I look back and it was, I wanted to, you know, play games and I learned how to move the, move pixels around on the screen with turtle graphics. Mm -hmm. But it it was super nerdy for a six-year-old in the early 80s. Jeff, I think we are, we are definitely of the same generation. I have the same memories of my first computer, a Sinclair ah. 48K Spectrum, and I remember typing those words, uh, the, that code out and copying it from the magazine as well. Such cherished memories for me. I know that for myself, it influenced the way I see the world from an open mm. source perspective. I saw that code early on, and that was just the way it was. Do you think there was any influence there for you? You worked for open source companies. You would be shocked to discover that I've got some rants on the topic in general. I'll hold those off. But probably the biggest influence for me in terms of conceptualizing like how we relate to software is from, you know, probably influenced by those early opportunities to type in stuff and see the computer do things. But HyperCard was actually probably the biggest influence for me because I think probably when I was like 10 or 11, my dad was able to get a loner, like old Fat Mac for the Apple nerds in the house. It's like a Mac 128 or maybe 512 that had been upgraded with extra memory to be equivalent to a Mac Plus. Oh, I've not heard of a fat Mac before. Yeah, it, it existed for a very narrow window of time. A chance to like tinker around with with a Macintosh, and then over one extended formative summer, we were loaned a Mac, an actual Mac Plus, and I, you know, wow. did all kinds of stuff tinkering with that over the course of the summer, and uh, ended up writing a lot of like weird little hypercard scripts and stacks and learned how to do a lot of stuff with that. It was really my first experience programming in in a way that you would call programming, not just typing in code from a magazine and writing little comments that would print out on the screen, but like actually thinking about a problem I wanted to solve and Mm. deconstructing it into what I would need to do in order to solve that problem and learning how to make the computer do each one of those things. HyperCard was where I did that. And for for folks who don't are familiar with it, it was basically a free piece of software that was created around, I think, 1987. So fairly early in the Macintosh's life by an amazing genius named Bill Atkinson. I've I've been a big fan of his for years. He basically conceived it as like cards that were linked together, like almost a stack of index cards, but you could put anything you wanted to on those cards, fields of text or buttons, and then you could make 
links on the buttons to go from card to card and make them do things. And you could write increasingly more and more complicated little hypercard scripts that were attached to those buttons or pieces of text or things on those cards. Cards themselves could have scripts. And slowly but surely, you could assemble some fairly sophisticated software. The game Myst was written in hypercard. It was one of the very early, like big name hypercard public software. And it was used as some special hacks to allow it to display color graphics instead of black and white graphics. But under the hood, it was lots of these cards that were chained together with complex internal logic to govern what your state in the world of Mist was and what you had clicked on and where you were going. It was designed with the idea of a stack of index cards that could do complicated things. But it was almost web-like in the complexity that you could achieve by combining those things in different ways. And I, I don't know how accurate it is, but I know a lot of people have said that it was a significant influence on Tim Berners-Lee when he was first working mm. on the web as a concept. Yeah, yeah. I've always thought it was a shame that Apple didn't really run with HyperCard once the sort of modern era of Apple began, because it feels like it would have been an, a very interesting complement for, for the way that technology and digital publishing went under with mm -hmm. the web's influence. But one of the keys was a piece of software you wrote in HyperCard. Anyone who could run it could also open it up and decompose it and look at what all mm. of the scripts were, what are the objects that are sitting around in the, what are buttons, what are icons, what are just a, a picture that someone painted and put on the background and doesn't have any logic associated with it. How do the scripts interact with each other? You could go through and learn about that stuff and copy and paste other people's code. And it was very web-like in that sense too, that the mechanics of what was going on under the surface to make it do what it did were discoverable. It wasn't open source in the legal sense, we would say today, but also predated things like the GPL and stuff like that. It was before that time, but the idea that you could go in and learn from it and that it was all there to, to examine and manipulate and, and customize was a real shaping factor in how I thought about software and how I thought about approaching mm. it. It was a fairly simple programming language, so it was a sort of rude awakening when I tried to dive into more complex stuff. It definitely shaped the way I conceived of software in the world of how we solve problems and how we do stuff. And that summer when you had that Mac and you were tinkering did you see yourself in computers when you grew up or did you no. think you were going to be doing something else? On the contrary, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write. I wanted to be a journalist. When I was 10, I, I actually started publishing a zine and I, I ended up doing it for, I think, about six years or so, So, which is a long run for a solo <laughs> zine effort. Indie, but, you're uh, an indie publisher, right? I suppose were. so, yeah. And it's funny because like I stopped that. I think it finally ended up, I, I let that go around 91 or 92, which when I think about it is just shy of when the web started taking off. And like a lot of that same energy reappeared, but in a very different way in the form of random weird web zines and stuff like that. That was really what I saw my future as. I wanted to go into magazine publishing or journalism of some kind. That was what I cared about. And when you're 12, maybe 13 or so, it's your conceptions of what the future is going to look like and what you're going to be doing are always hazy. My actually using technology and software and you know having that as a primary focus really wasn't something I anticipated. But that programming experience and background that I got of just tinkering around with that stuff and using it to make things that were interesting or to solve problems that I had or to just mess around because it was an interesting little puzzle to, to unpack, that ended up helping when I eventually got a job at a local marketing and design company. I ended up being the guy who sat next to the web server where we had home pages for clients in the days when charged someone to make a home page. So I ended up saying, oh, I guess I'll read up on how Windows NT works and so on. A lot of my experience in that world 
was picking it up as I went and discovering what the next step was to do something more interesting or to stretch and do the next useful thing. I feel tremendously fortunate because the timing of when I was at that spot was very fortunate timing because nobody really knew what the big picture was and it was all just emerging. So discovering it piecemeal that way, even though I had no technology or computer science or mathematics background or whatever in my, I I had no credentials to my name, I was able to just work my way into a position where five years later, I looked up and I said, oh, wow, I guess this is my job doing this Hmm. stuff writing database backends for complicated websites that we started making once home pages weren't enough. I don't think that I'm a fantastic programmer, but I enjoy the work of figuring out how things work and how they can be used to solve interesting problems. And that has served me really well as I grew and did more and different kinds of work in the software and technology industry. Your earlier statement about making sense of things certainly feels like there's a thread of that going through very early years and your first job as well. Yeah, it's that sense making. When I started that zine that I mentioned at age 10, that was also the first year that I was homeschooled. My parents, due to concerns about the school district that I was in in one particular year, nothing dramatic, just the usual parents wondering what the right choice would be due to some a combination of those kinds of concerns. And also what I can now look back on and see see was 100% undiagnosed ADHD on my part. They started homeschooling me in I think 1987, when I was 10. And that ended up going through like the end of high school. So I was homeschooled basically from fifth grade to the end of high school. After that, rather than going to college, I just got a summer job at the marketing company that I had mentioned because I'd you know, been doing the zine for a while. So I knew desktop publishing software and design software, and I was a passable copywriter. I don't think I'm stretching things too far by saying that I was a passable copywriter from having done so much of the the zine writing and production for stuff for the zine. And my plan was to use that summer to do some of this work and eventually get a degree in new media, which was what I really wanted to go into. But I just looked up after a couple of years and realized, whoa, hey, time has passed and I guess I'm doing this web thing. And it again, that's that that was a very fortunate moment to stumble into that kind of a thing because it was just before the dot-com crash, but there was still this understanding that there was there's something interesting going on here, but there were no courses you could take. There was no majoring in anything that was directly about that. So mm. you could just blunder and improvise your way into being a professional. And I'm still humbled and staggered by the fortunate timing of that and how it ended up shaping my life. Timing is everything, I think, is Mm -hmm. what I've learned over the last 20 to 40 years. I spent a great deal of time at Lullabot as well. And can you talk about how that originated? What's the origin story that landed you at Lullabot? I'd been working in various software development and web jobs for quite a while since that initial marketing agency job. I worked my way through various kinds of work, digital publishing. I I, I did a stint in grocery industry supply chain management software. So it's somebody's got to make sure Fritos make their way around the country. Fritos are important. Of course. So I worked on different kinds of software development work and was the webmaster slash, you know, kind of software developer for a mega church in the Chicago area for a while, working on one of their websites. I worked my way through a couple of those jobs, but on the side, there were also different projects I was always kicking around and starting. And one of them was a weird cyberpunk web comic that a friend and I were working on that probably around starting around 97 to 2000 or so. We'd kicked around a lot of ideas on on what we wanted to do with this, but I wanted to build out uh, this like sort of 
thematic encyclopedia to store all the lore we'd been accumulating for it and also to publish the actual webcomic itself. Mm -hmm. And I looked around at a bunch of different pieces of software that could do that. It dates it, the era that I was in. Zoops and I don't think Django was out yet. Django definitely wasn't out yet. But I did end up coming across a piece of software called uh, Civic Space, which was an outgrowth of uh, the Howard Dean campaign and the software they'd used to do Dean campaign websites. And I dug closer and found out it was this open source program called Drupal. I didn't know PHP. I was a C-sharp guy at the time, but I knew SQL and we used lots of SQL database stuff involved in this. And I just dove in and started tinkering with it and logged on to IRC and got in touch with the community, primarily just because I wanted to build out some thing to mm-hmm. store all of this information. And like what I had wanted to do Years earlier, I'd built out a complex database schema to store all the stuff that I had. And I wanted to be able to take any kind of information like an event or a person or a place or a piece of ephemera from the fictional world that we were creating, an article from a fictional magazine that took place in 2032 or something like that. And I wanted to be able to feed it into all of this. And I wanted them to each have their own special kinds of data, like a magazine would have a publishing date and maybe a byline from a fictional writer or something like that. But an event would have different information associated with it. But I also wanted to be able to treat them as just like the same kind of thing in other ways. Like I wanted to be able to treat them as just like articles if I wanted to look at the whole pile of information in a different way. And I built out a big database schema to do that. And then I realized I did not want to write an entire CMS from scratch that did all that stuff. I mean, it was one thing to sketch out how the data was going to look, but actually all the legwork of writing CMS was a nightmare. And I found Drupal and just by pure luck and happenstance, the content architecture of Drupal had that approach. It it had what they called the node system, where every piece of content Mm -hmm. was a node, and there were different types of nodes that could have different data, but you could still look at them as nodes if you wanted to slice and dice things in different ways. And at the time, a lot of the tools that were easily accessible and available to like hack on really siloed things by type of content. Have a plugin for your website that would add products, or you could have a plugin that would add forum posts, but products and forum posts never met. They were just two separate universes, essentially. And uh, Drupal's approach to that sort of cut down the wall that divided those kinds of content, and it really clicked with the way that I was thinking about that big sort of swimmy encyclopedia of knowledge for this fictional world that I was creating. Now, ironically, I never ended up publishing that. My friend and I produced maybe like an issue and a half of content for the webcomic, but I ended up going deep into the Drupal community and spent probably the next like 15 to 16 years working in digital publishing, content management, so large-scale content management software and open source. And it was probably like maybe a, a year or two after I really got heavily into the Drupal community that a couple of other very smart folks who were doing independent work, Jeff Robbins and Matt Westgate, started a company called Lullabot to do like consulting and education and training because Drupal was starting to take off at the time. And there was a lot of interest and people doing interesting things, but there wasn't necessarily a lot of good learning resources. And it it wasn't easy to get access to expertise about Drupal unless you too were willing to wade into software developer world and like hang out in IRC and debug SQL calls for companies that were starting to try to figure out how to use it effectively. There were very few resources at the time for that. And that was like Lullabot's sweet spot. When I joined, they wanted to educate and also provide expertise and advice for large organizations that were trying to make sense of this wild and woolly open source CMS. Yeah. And you spent a great career there. (laughs) About 15 years, yeah. yeah. Gosh, that's a long time. That's a really long time, especially in this industry. It speaks volumes for what Jeff and Matt built. Mm -hmm. And I can't say enough about the entire team at Lullabot. It's 60 plus people now. Mm -hmm. I think it was like maybe seven or eight when I joined. And they've consistently worked to grow slowly and and sustainably. And very carefully. And over time, 
have changed what the focus was, what kind of work they were doing as needs became apparent. For a long time, Lullabot didn't do like development of websites. It was like training and advisory consulting. But increasingly, it became clear that it was very hard to do that without being able to be confident that there was a team that you could say, okay, now there, here's five people who know how to run with that advice. And so Lullabot started building a team to be able to do those kinds of things. And that's actually, that, that's what it does now. Lullabot builds and implements giant sites. And like things like the addition of Jared Ponchat as the head of design at Lullabot, that, that was another one of those sort of landmarks. And yeah, it's a wonderful team. And I, while I was there, that was when I got my, started sinking my teeth into content strategy because for one, it's, it was such a, I can now look back and say it's such a big part of any kind of digital publishing work. And a lot of the stuff that seemed to go wrong on projects that we were trying to figure out and trying to solve, that wasn't technology. It was just something, some sort of planning problem that hadn't been accounted for. It's content strategy. Where does the content fit into it? Who's producing it? How is this stuff planned? A lot of the stuff that I was drawn to trying to figure out in order to make these projects make sense, I discovered was content strategy and information architecture questions. And I am reminded of this almost on a daily basis that really we're not building websites or supporting websites or pushing code and we're not really dealing with technology. Everything we do every day is people. It's people that use the site. It's people that want the site to be built. It's humans that we interact with. Like at the end of the day, that's who you're servicing. It's the humans on the other end of the screen. And yep. it can be so easy to get uh, waylaid by the uh, technology and by the code. It, it's a very easy rabbit hole to dive down. It's there. There's always an endless amount of interesting complexity and new vistas in in the world of like pure technology that you can mess around with. And people are the messy, frustrating part that like always throw curveballs at you. And you can't pause a person and open up the debugger to figure out what's going on. You just have to, <laughs> you just have to walk, work through it in real time as part of the mess. I never thought of opening a debugger up for someone. That's, uh, I think that's <laughs> that like getting a therapist. It's a, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I could buy that. Okay. It's Wednesday. Got to go see my debugger. Yeah. <laughs> what and i change the mood a little what has been your greatest struggle in life do you think i'll say two one the challenge of what and how to dedicate my energy to accomplish meaningful things i think that's it can be a struggle for, I think, everybody to a certain extent. Probably about two to three years ago, I was diagnosed with adult ADHD. And I had always joked about ADHD, but I was very I was very set in like the traditional assumption that ADHD looks like a hyperactive kid running around in circles when he should be studying for class. And only very recently, we're doing some reading did I start realizing like, oh no, actually that's that's a neurological thing. So there's this thing called executive function that it is literally what your brain taking an idea like, oh man, I should really do my taxes and turning it into you standing up and going over and getting papers and a pencil and starting work on that. The executive function is what actually does the work of making those tasks happen in your brain. And ADHD is a disorder that basically means you don't have a working executive function. So the running joke is that if you meet anybody who's survived you know, to adulthood without their life falling apart and has ADHD, you've met someone who's figured out how to like weaponize anxiety as a substitute for executive function, mm -hmm. because that sort of impending deadline panic that we all face sometimes can kick the brain into a, a, a rough equivalent of executive function. I'm not a doctor or a neurologist, so I've probably, you know, I probably goofed that up a bit. But like the idea is you can use anxiety to kickstart and fuel 
a kind of focus and drive that can help you power through difficult stuff. But there's a real limit to that. And a lot of people either end up developing fairly sophisticated workarounds or systems in their life to keep things on the rails so that they have, when they're not in the middle of an anxiety-fueled deadline push, everything doesn't fall apart. But you know, that a lot of energy can go into that. And ADHD can be very difficult. Again, I feel fortunate because the world of technology is full of people with ADHD and it's very friendly to them because the idea of either being attracted to shiny things or being hyper-focused on a task and blind to the outside world fits very well with the stereotype of a smart coder or a, a programmer developer type person. You don't stand out too badly. But Trying to figure out how those things have impacted my personal relationships, like with my wife and my friends and my loved ones, and how to improve the way that I treat them and the impact that the way I live my life has on them, that's been difficult. Being diagnosed with ADHD and, and going on medication for that and learning where to put a lot of my energies, that has been a significant challenge. The payoff for it has been massive. I'd say that's probably one big thing. I didn't know it was a struggle until a couple of years ago and starting to get treatment for it opened my eyes to, holy cow, other people's brains just do these things naturally? That's amazing. But the other thing that I think would probably be unpacking my own relationship with fundamentalist Christianity, authoritarian ideologies in general, mm. and figuring out how to be a good person in a way that is meaningful to me and bears positive fruit in my life in a way that I believe is healthy and sustainable and and good, I guess. The challenge when you start wrestling with questions about faith and spirituality and, and religion is that even words like good are tremendously overloaded. What it even means to say that something is good can be a lifetime of unpacking. And like grappling with some of those questions is significant. It's, it's interesting for me because I spent probably my teen years, what my relationship to this faith that I had been raised in was going to be. And I, I like to think that I was pretty on fire. I, I was gung-ho. I wanted to go out and change the world and spread the good news. And I also wanted to be right. I wanted to be correct mm. about things, which is always an important quality in both people who are drawn to like authoritarian movements or internet arguments. But I faced increasing challenges with that as I like got deeper into apologetics and theology because mm. I wanted to, you know, if this was the right thing, if this was the only way that people should live and the only way to be truly good, then everybody else needed to get on board and I needed to be able to convince them. I, I needed to learn apologetics and theology and rhetoric and debate skills and all of this stuff. You can imagine how incredibly insufferable and annoying I was as like a 17 year old. Like it, it's mind boggling that I wasn't just like curb stomped by a next door neighbor at some point just for being <laughs> incredibly <laughs> insufferable. But increasingly, I like to say that I hit the wall eventually. And I think that's very common in fundamentalism for very idealistic people who are driven to earnestly do what they ought to do and do the right thing inside of the framework that they've been given. Fundamentalism and a lot of totalizing ideologies don't allow a lot of flexibility. They don't allow a lot of room for people to find what their path through something is. And without that ability to flex, breaking is usually the only other option when, when there are difficult questions that are faced. And I think that's very yeah. common in fundamentalism and evangelical Christianity in particular, that flavor of it. I think that's a common thread with a lot of people who grew up in there and left, at least it could be selection bias. My experience is usually that there's more of that than people who just drifted away because they didn't care.
And that's my story. I was tremendously passionate about it, but I couldn't figure out how to resolve a lot of the fundamental inconsistencies Mm. that I was encountering as I grappled with deeper questions and arguments about what was good. What's the source of goodness, so to speak? Why should we pursue one direction versus the other? And it wasn't the opposite of some sort of wild teenage rebellion phase because it wasn't like I went off and pursued drugs, sex, and rock and roll. It was more that I just got depressed and read Kierkegaard for a while. But I think I came out on the other side of that. It took years, but I think the struggle was figuring out what my values were in the sense of what I value in the world, what I feel is worth pursuing and protecting, how to articulate those and how to arrive at them if there wasn't some external authority dictating what they ought to be. And I didn't realize that was such a significant drive for me until I was stripped of that external framework for it and had to stumble and puzzle through it myself. And I think it's a, it's, an important exercise. I think all of us have values in the sense of things that we value and and prize. And I think one of the most dangerous things about the kind of fundamentalism, fundamentalist authoritarianism that I came out of is that it too has values and ideologies and perspectives, but it launders them through Uh, a story about a a literal take on the Bible. We don't have Mm. a perspective. We're just taking this thing at face value. And everyone else is bringing a perspective that they have to prove. And we're just the unvarnished version. And, and, like sociology and philosophy wise, that's like a, it's a primitivist strain, which isn't to say that it is primitive, but that it's, animated by this desire to for to return to something purer and simpler before it got complicated but it launders what is a very specific set of values and set of perspectives as being the original pure thing rather than what it's bringing to the table and not to go too deep into the theology and the politics of it but like that tendency to launder our perspectives as just the facts on the ground or something like that is very easy to slide into. You you can see the same tendency sometimes when people say, just check the science, and this is just what science says, when the actual truth is a lot more complicated. And what they are really saying is, this is what I've concluded from what I see in the facts, but I'm not comfortable enough with that. I need science to be on my side, not just something that I'm engaging with. You know, I'm not like euphemistically referring to any particular specific controversy right now or something like that. I am just reflecting on the fact that that tendency isn't exclusive to spiritual belief. But like the world I grew up in, evangelical fundamentalism, it's almost a defining characteristic. And wrestling with that and trying to acknowledge perspective and to iron out what my values are, what is important to me, I have to do that but also I can do it without universalizing it. I don't have to convince everyone else that my values have to be their values. There may be some things that I think are necessary for everyone to value or are important for everyone to value, but it does. that's a different kind of question than what I value. Sorry, that, was, that went far afield, but... No, I quite appreciate the, the thesis. I can identify with the process of being somewhere and leaving said thing and finding one's own values and discovering that what you've been brought up to believe has been essentially passed down by generations and maybe not exactly true. It, um, it may not be the the bedrock of reality but in fact exactly. just another layer that's been accumulated yeah exactly exactly i i really appreciate you sharing that with us and i would 
love to know on the, the opposite end, what gives you joy these days? Are you reading anything that brings you joy? Are you well, doing things that make you smile? I do. I'm really enjoying reading more about different fields that do this sense-making thing, in particular linguistics and physical architecture of books, stuff like that, and even things like a museum exhibit design. Mm -hmm. The attempt to translate the concept of a particular museum collection into space and imagery. Like, how do you communicate those things? And linguistics. I like to joke that if you scratch most structured content problems under the surface, what you've got is a linguistics problem. But I enjoy those things. And I wouldn't say they're about work, but they give a lot of useful perspective. Recreationally speaking, I think my, my wife and I, we, there's a lot, of, a lot of films, books that we read, you know, chat about. She's a big fan of Chinese and Korean series. So I've, my horizons have been expanded over the last couple oh, of years, gosh. and that's been a lot of fun. I enjoy like some 3D printing and design, it's tinkering around and like making brackets and tiny little shipping containers to 3D print and learning how to solder and make simple circuits when something breaks. It's for me, like it's interesting and enjoyable from a creative perspective, but it's also a shift from the very like high concept, abstract, intangible world that a lot of my work lives in. Figuring out how to make a tiny little brass nozzle that's clogged with plastic, how to clear that out so that the 3D printer can keep printing is a very different kind of problem. And it's a really nice change of pace. And you're still making sense of things. Guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for your time. It's really precious to me. I'm so grateful that you spent the time answering my questions and thinking about the larger picture in life. It's just awesome to be one of 8 billion with you. And thanks for joining us. Likewise. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure. I hope you'll join us in the next episode of One of Eight Billion, when we hear from Tolu Adelai, co-founder of AJ Tennis Academy, which is working to use tennis to inspire kids around the world and help them achieve their potential. What makes me smile? It's a connection with humans every day. I'm able to travel here and there, and those moments when I'm able to connect with another human being who speaks a very different language from me, who has a different experience from me, to borrow your words, a different story from me. But somehow we're able to find that connection, whether it's over tennis, on a tennis court, whether it's over travel, or whether it's over food. That's a reason to smile. This has been One of Eight Billion, a podcast about all of us, online, at oneof8b.com. Join us again next time as we listen to one of 8 billion other stories. One of 8 billion is supported by 107, a technology studio whose mission is to make things that matter. Find out more at 107.com. I'm Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening. You must